You are listening to Mike Seminary and Friends, a Q1 Network production. This may be the first time I've had a guest join me where my standard kind of opening pitch just isn't going to work for a variety of reasons. One, there's so many commonalities in our life, it's almost overwhelming. And I was just sharing with him as I went back through his book, I listed some of them off. And I there really are so, so many similarities. And then add on to that, so many commonalities over the course of really our, our lifetime, we've only really had maybe four or five opportunities to meet and have a conversation. And most of them have been very, very brief. And so I I almost struggle with how to, what's the best way to introduce this guy? And I think this is the way to do it. Steve Revlin, welcome to Mike Seminary and Friends. It's great to see you. How are you? I'm great, Mike. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> As a, a bit of a backdrop, but thanks for taking time from your schedule to join me. And it's your birthday month, so whatever that day is, happy birthday month, the month of May to you, Steve. Thanks, Mike. We we actually met very, very briefly, I believe, some years ago when you were performing at NDSU, and we'll circle back to that. I don't remember another time between that period of time, which would have been the early, mid-70s, somewhere in there, to during the COVID, where... I saw on Facebook, and that's another interesting thing. We didn't know each other that well, but we were friends on Facebook. That's the beauty and the curse, maybe, of Facebook. You, I saw that you you have one of your <clears throat> incredible pieces of work, in this case, the writing desk that I'm using right now for my podcast for sale. And I was well aware of the incredible work that you you produce with your hands and your mind, and I just had to buy it. And then we met at your studio, which I think is your home, purchased the writing desk, and here we are. Well, I asked you to join me because I I read your book, which is simply reverent, an autobiography, how to succeed in life despite yourself. And Steve, it was... It was a remarkable read for me um, because of so many similarities in our life, but also how you opened up yourself um, for the purposes of sharing, you know, uh, blessings and curses and all of that kind of thing. So here's going to be my first question. Tell me about the day that you decided for a guy that's never read a book how you decided that you needed to put pen to paper and write a book about your life. Okay. At the time it was two years ago and I was 68 years old and um, I felt I needed to write uh, an autobiography um, for my kids. So when I, when I eventually tipped over, they had something to, uh, you know, remember me by, and there was a lot 
that they didn't know about me because uh, four of my kids are stepkids, and they didn't uh, start knowing me until I was 52. So, but I do have a 43-year-old biological son who, um, who I really, I, I guess I wrote it more for him. So my intention was to uh, to print maybe 20 copies. And um, it's turned into, uh, wow, it took me six months to write. And um, it I shopped at the manuscript around to, uh, I'm sure, 20 different publishers, and I was forewarned, you will be rejected by all of them, which I was, <laughs> uh, with the exception of Palmetto Publishing. And so last September, the, I got a call from Josie at Palmetto, and she said, you know, we really like your your manuscript, but we, we question its authenticity. <laughs> And I said, well, you know, tell me why. And she said, well, how is it you could have written a book without actually reading one first? And if we go ahead with this, you will be the first uh, author that we've ever had that has written a book without consuming one. I said, well, there you go. I'm your guy. (laughs) (laughs) And... um, so we proceeded to publish. I told her what my intentions were. I just, you know, I'm, I'm, I just need a few copies, and uh, for my family. And um, so I ended up. Uh, it was released January 31st uh, of this year, 2023, and I had a book signing at my gallery. And then um, the publisher got it um, in the Los Angeles Times Festival of Books Book Fair. That was three weekends ago, and that's the largest book fair in the country. And then the following weekend, it was in the San Francisco Reader's Magnet uh, uh, Confab Book Fair. And my agent was there for that event to represent me. And so it is turned into a be careful what you wish for moment because I'm an artist. I'm a furniture maker. I'm not I'm not an author. And now the publisher wants me to write another book. Can you write a book of fiction? <laughs> you know, and I go, well, never say never. So I said, let me think about it. And um because here's the deal, Mike, I haven't even read my book. Because you know because I know everything that's in it. You know, and um, normally, uh, if you put a novel in front of me and and, and I, I get to page 10 and I'm in La La Land somewhere, you know, designing something or, you know, in my, my, my brain is very heavy on the right side and the left side is just kind of empty. <laughs> so... So, yeah, I, I'm... Uh, and of course I can read... In small portions. That's why I've I've read the newspaper for forty years. I've had it delivered to my door, or in my case now on online. I have to to, to carry on conversations with adults like yourself. I need to know what's going on in the world, and going on in, with politics and and uh, and everything like that. So I have to read something, but it's got to be in small portions. When I did a book reading at the gallery, I I, I read a, a chapter and and someone said, 
well, you can you can read just fine. And I said, yeah. You know, of course I can. But I've never read a book. And in, in school, you have to read books to pass classes. And that's something I never did. I never passed any class. You know, I was I was four credits short of graduating in high school. I had a GPA of 0. .04. And it, the reason it was so high was that I passed Woodshop in 1969 and 1970. <laughs> So I was trying to do the math because I'm pretty good at math. Uh, and and uh, I was trying to figure out what my GPA would have been if I hadn't taken Woodshop. But back then in 71, if you were a good kid, they would sign your diploma. Well, I learned this because I, I, I had no idea this would happen. But they signed my diploma and they let me go. They let me go because my counselor called my mom and, and he said, Mrs. Revlin, Steve wasn't at um, graduation rehearsal. Why is that? And Edna said, well, we all know, you know, what's, what's ahead. Summer school, back to school again next fall, embarrassment. Um, and he said to her, Edna, do you really think we want him back here next year? <laughs> Make sure he shows up. At the ceremony, we'll fit him up with a gown, which they did. And <clears throat> mom and dad and my brother Paul were at the, at the top row at the Civic Center in, the, in this in the nosebleed section, probably out of embarrassment, um, knowing that I'm either supposed to give him a thumbs up or a thumbs down when I when I get my diploma and sit down and open it up. And so I went down the aisle with all my other classmates who were oblivious to how much of a derelict I actually was. <laughs> got, got my diploma, sat down, opened it up, and it was signed. So I gave uh, I gave my family a thumbs up, and my brother jumped up and raised his hands. And so that was to me because you know this, Mike. We we kind of I had Vietnam hanging over my head too, and a lot of us kids were scared. It did affect our our schooling, especially our senior year in in, uh, in 1971. So I'm not using that as an excuse because I I grew up with dyslexia and ADHD, and and we there just wasn't a wasn't a term for it. You were just a special needs child, and that's what I was. And my parents realized that early on. Um. So that's that's a long convoluted uh, answer to your question, but that's how I decided to write the book was more just for my family and my kids, so my stepkids could uh, eventually learn about their stepdad. Well, uh, Steve, the first of all, I'm sorry to interrupt your train. It's all right. First of all, thank you for the compliment when you said when i carry on conversations with adults like you you know as a recovering politician that's something i've rarely heard that i'm an adult because a lot of politicians never get that kind of a compliment so thank you so much and thank you for bringing up attention deficit and dyslexia 
which we have in our family, by the way. Right. Um, and especially back in those days, handled and treated far differently than today, as you just eloquently right. uh, shared with us. But it also now gives <clears throat> the listeners, and then those listeners are also going to go buy this book, and we'll tell them how to get it when we're done. Right. So they can read more about how one can navigate through life irrespective of what strengths or limitations we may or may not have. And right. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. Um, as I mentioned in the opening, we have, I mean, Steve, I just couldn't, oh, before I forget, the reason we were not at your book signing event in January, we were in Florida. Um, and then I completely forgot. I saw it and I said, wow, we're not going to And so fortuitous for us that Deb was in the studio recently and um, you, you, had, you handed her a book. So thank you so much. Let, let me back up to this because I'm aware of how amazingly talented you are with your hands and that creative side of your brain and how you create incredible pieces of art, whether it's furniture or something else. How, where, if you can pinpoint it, where in life, well, how old were you when you kind of figured out, you know, I, I got something going on here. I can do some things um, that maybe others can't. And maybe you didn't look at it like that, but how old were you when you realized, I, I have some talents here? Well, you know, in the book, and it, it, uh, there's a, there's a, quite a few chapters about, about my childhood. And Early on, as, as I mentioned, I think my parents realized I'm the youngest of four, and and uh, they all went on to get PhDs and master's degrees, and and then I was kind of that black sheep of the family. And my parents uh, basically lent me their backyard to to do projects in tree houses and forts, pole vaulting pits, football fields, golf courses snow slides so they thought we're gonna we're just gonna we're gonna turn him loose because this this is the one way we feel he can uh develop uh independence and um and some security and so as i was I, there's a chapter in the book called the fort and i was nine years old and and there was lumber underneath the porch, and so Dad let me have access to that, and I built this fort, and then I put a potbelly stove in there with a chimney, and I never once saw Dad come out and say, "Hey, you can't do that. What do you what do you think you're doing?" They let me do it. Nine years old, and it was just a shack. You know, it was thrown, it was just thrown together with old two by fours and old sliding and, and, but there was this little potbelly stove in that underneath the porch and I grabbed it and I hooked it up and made a chimney and, and we were poor. We, we were, we came from a poor lower middle class family 
And it was the late fifties, early sixties. And they just, they, like I say, they turned me loose. And it was then probably that I realized because I, I also had Tourette's syndrome. Um, and if, if anyone doesn't know what that is, it is a, it's an uncontrollable urge to make noises or shake your head or stretch your neck or, you know, I was all of those things. So I had very few friends and I thought, well, this is the way I can possibly make friends is to create these projects in the backyard. And honestly, they didn't come because I was kind of a, I was kind of a freak and I was bullied unmercifully by my classmates. So if you're familiar with, uh, with, with Mel Tillis, and I'm sure you are, Mel is a country Western singer and he stuttered, but what he sang, he didn't stutter. So when I was in my backyard doing my projects, I did not uh, I did not have any ticks. But when I was in school, yeah, I was um, I was made fun of, and that continued on until I was a probably a sophomore in high school. So, um, but it was those days, and then my seventh grade wood shop at Agassiz that started to make me think. You know, I'm kind of good with my hands. I'm not good with my with my brain. There's something going on up there. Of course, I'm just a child. I don't really realize those <clears throat> those things. But but it was a process, and it probably wasn't until uh, woodshop in high school that I that really lit the flame underneath me. But prior to that, I was, I was performing. Um, I started performing on party line in 1963. I was nine years old and you remember Vernon Newell and Bill Weaver and, and uh, Pat Kelly and the whole, the whole bunch, the whole crew there, Don Roseland, my sister, Claudia was Miss Fargo <clears throat> and Miss North Dakota. <clears throat> Excuse me at the time. And she asked me, Steve, why don't you come on a uh, party line with me? And I'm thinking, why the heck would she take the chance of this, of bringing this kid that has Tourette's on with her? And um, so she did. And um, I had no ticks, no noises, just harmony. Just two-part harmony, Norwegian folk songs, and and uh, uh, some Mel Torme and and uh, some of the classic uh, um, artists from that from that time. In fact, we Peter Paul and Mary had just released uh, "Puff the Magic Dragon," so we we actually did that, <laughs> unbeknownst to the. Uh, to myself, my sister, and and of course Verna Newell, uh, what it was all about. But <laughs> Verna, kept, she kept asking me back throughout the sixties, which which I did, and um, and each one of those times, um, I was able to perform without any issues. 
because if I'd had issues, of course, they wouldn't have asked me back. But um, um, what was your question again, Mike? No, you know, <laughs> what age were you when you realized you have this gift? And I'm just, I'm just. Yeah, well, you know, sure. The uh, So by the time I, I graduated uh, from high school in 71, I had to decide music and you know as an entertainer because which i at the time i thought that wow this is great stuff performing at these coffee houses and all the girls and and uh because i don't i think 98 percent of the of the audience were were young ladies and of course i didn't mind that hold on now well, do you think verna was kind of sweet on you oh she was sweet on me i <laughs> I, I was convinced of that you know but <laughs> uh she was a dear she was um she was yeah, I would when we come to the the front door of, of WDAY, which which at the time was at the, uh, with the Prairie Public uh, Television Building right now on downtown, and they would greet me. Uh, Bill Weaver would come and shake my hand, and I at the time was wondering what is this handshaking thing that the adults do. I'm trying to, you know, figure out what this is. It some sort of ritual that these folks do, and eventually I figured it out. And, um, but they were very kind. Uh, and I got, pay, I got paid, I got a check for $5, which at the time, you know, kept me in Milky Way bars for a, a good solid week. So that was a lot of money in the early 60s to pay a, to pay a nine year old kid. And so, before I forget, I'm sorry yeah. to interrupt your train of thought. <clears throat> One of the common connections that we have here. Your sister Claudia was uh, Miss Fargo. I had two sisters. I had three, but two sisters. One was Miss North Dakota Teen. Wow. And then Miss North Dakota USA. That's Jennifer. Right. My sister Diane, who you may or may not know, she graduated Shanley in 70, a year before you at South. Mm -hmm. She was Miss 16. So, and so I sent them a text earlier. Do, do you, either of you remember Claudia? And because I'm just saying to myself, music, WDY, Vernon Newell with a big bouffant hairdo. Um, and then, by the way, what was the show? What was the Saturday afternoons? WDAY, they would have bands back then. Do you remember that? I do. I do, yeah. They were, they were, they were, they were really with it, you know. And I think that was uh, that was more Bill Weaver or Boyd Christensen's uh, gig than than Verna's. But uh, yeah, they they were very um, philanthropic when it came to local musicians. And Ken Kennedy, you know, before them, Ken Kennedy, of course, he was uh, Peggy Lee's agent at the time and he was at wday in the early days in the 50s so he, i i think they they probably uh took up uh after what ken had started yeah i also think because i remember that now as i close my eyes i can remember that like yesterday i also think they had a spot in their hearts for kids you know, here we are in the business of providing entertainment, news, all of that. And it wasn't 24-7 back then. And there were three networks. And then public television came along. 
I think that someone in that institution, and you, you may be right, may have been Mr. Kennedy, they had a warm spot in their heart for kids. Let's give kids an opportunity right. um, to, to do something. Because we kid, we we would always say, well, there's nothing to do, right? But right. Right. they provided that. But we're, we're on the music thing. <laughs> we'll get to furniture and everything else in a minute. <laughs> That's where I remember you. Not well. And we talked about this when I picked up my piece of furniture. We had had a common friend who lost his struggle to addiction about two years ago, I think, somewhere in there. Mark Crocker, yeah, who was a very talented musician, right? And I remember almost again, like yesterday, and I think it was with Bill Ledoux, we went to the Crow's Nest at NDSU because Mark said, "Hey, I'm going to be playing there," and we were all in the same school at mm -hmm. Shanley at the time, and. He played in between your sets. That's right. I, I remember how talented you you were. So here's my question. You you really are, if you're still playing, a talented musician. Where along the time where, because you were recording, you were performing, you were pretty busy. Um, you, you had a good stick there. You did. You're a talented guy. Why? why was music not where you'd end up? And it was this incredible furniture gift and you creativity know. that you had. How did, how did that play out? Well, um, after high school, I continued to perform. In 1974, I, I cut a record uh, of two original corny songs at uh, Mark Custom Records over in Moorhead. And and then the radio stations were, were playing this this uh, record and we'd, we'd all get together at the, at the house, uh, my friends and I, and we'd, we'd call the radio station, they would, they would play it and we'd laugh hysterically as we're, well, as we're getting high and, and drinking, you know. Um, you, you can probably cut that out if you want to, but, um, it's in the book. Okay. So, <laughs> um, so after cutting the record, um, you know, when you're, when you're a single performer, um, and you're doing 30 songs in a night, all of the attention is on you. You can't screw up. If you're in a band, you can, you know, you can screw up. And no one is going to notice it. But for me, every chord, every word, every note had to be just right. And it just took a toll. And, you know, and at, this, at, the, at the same time, I was kind of nurturing this woodworking thing and, and, and you know, um, just kind of flying by the seat of my pants making some tables, uh, some contemporary tables for some interior designers in town. And I eventually had to make the decision, you know, entertainer, furniture maker. You know, what uh, what path do you think is going to work best for you? Well, I have to thank mom and dad for <laughs> for giving me some good advice. And they they said, well, either path doesn't look good. <laughs> <laughs> Does not look good for you. 
But if you had a path to take, I would go. I would go the woodworking route, because um, being an entertainer, you've got to get your foot in the door somewhere. You've got to know somebody. You've got to be really good. And I was. I just kind of thought I was. I was average. And so that is when I I made that uh, that decision. Uh, in the book, it, it states, um, I believe it was 1976, I, I gave my last concert at NDSU at a new, uh, a brand new coffee house called the 20 After. And uh, John Denver was playing the same night at the, at the Civic. And I thought, shoot, you know, nobody's going to show up. They're all going to go see John Denver. And of course, I obsessed about that all day. But I prepared, uh, and my in my preparation was I was going to uh, tell the crowd this is my last performance for a while, and so much to my delight, the place was packed. Probably because it was a brand new coffee house, and I was I was kind of uh, um, leading it off. But. Um, I told everyone that night and there were a number of boos and, you know, I had to explain between sets. Well, what, what the heck are you doing, Mr. Evelyn? Uh, You know, we're, what are we going to do now? (laughs) Well, you know, John Denver comes every once in a while to Fargo. So, um, so it was that night that I decided to put all of my energy into my uh, furniture making. And, um, and today, uh, fifty years later, I uh, last May May twelfth of of, of twenty twenty two, I performed at at the gallery at Dakota Fine Art, and we had sixty chairs set up, and they were all filled, and I was able to resurrect that act that I had in the seventies. I had an act called Man of a Thousand Voices, and I would mimic. Neil Young, James Taylor, Bob Dylan, uh, myself. Um, and that was so much fun. And and then to go 50 years uh, before I performed again, uh, I told my wife uh, when I got home that night, I said, you know, I could die tomorrow. I'm good. This was <laughs> This was just... I've had a great career as, as a furniture maker, and now I was able to perform. And then everyone, all my friends were saying, well, you need to do this once a year, at least once a year. So I was planning on doing it again this May, but I'm I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it off probably until the fall uh, when the lake season is over with. But I probably will perform again at the gallery in September or October. So there you go. And Mark, Mark Crocker. Dear friend, I wish that, you know, and I'm 32 years sober, drug-addicted alcoholic. Congratulations, friend. Thank you. I, when, I, when I saw that Mark had passed, I thought, God, I wish he had reached out to me. I wish he had, I wish I had had written the book by then so he could have read the book. Um, I was crushed. You know, and and often I have artist friends that die, and a lot of artists we have a tendency to to uh, have trouble with addiction, and um, 
I have a number of artist friends who are who are sober, and many who should be, and some that are dead. You know, and um, so when it came to Mark, that was really that was that was hard hard to uh, to accept, and and of course many times I wish I had been there for someone, and you just don't know where they're at in their life, and it just it's sad. So well, I'm sorry for your loss. Sorry for your loss too. Um, by the way, he was he was a good friend. Um, I was in Fargo for a prayer service. This is uh, late April or March, whatever, <clears throat> for a friend that had died. And I had seen a post on social media by Mark's son that his dad was in the hospital struggling with his addiction and it didn't look good i hadn't seen mark for a long time on the way out of town to go back to bismarck i went to to see him and uh obviously he wasn't in good shape it was about three weeks later i think he he passed we talked about you because uh, I, I had met you again, bought right. a piece of furniture, and um, and I prayed with him. But <clears throat> he lit up when I talked about you, and he remembered so fondly about oh, the wow. times you had performed together. And right. he was he was an incredibly talented guy, yeah. and. Sadly, addiction for some people, it, it, you, it's just a demon, and you can't get past it. And he was one of those guys. Um, he remembered you, Steve, finally. Uh, so you, you, you brought it up. You had a significant period of time where that was an important part of your life. Right. What was the event in your life that you said – it's time. Okay. Well, it was it was March 6, 1991. It's a date that I'll never forget. You know, I was uh, in my little shop here in the same building I'm sitting at right now. Uh, 10 o'clock in the morning, smoking a joint and having a beer. That was just what I did all day, every day. And... At the time, um, I really had no, I was 38, I had really no intention of seeing 40. And um, basically living month to month <clears throat> financially. And, but the IRS had a lien on my house that I was sitting in, that I'm sitting in right now. And I had debt up to my ears. And um, the phone rang. And normally I had the phone off the hook because, and it's in the book, because that I just, I knew what the calls were about. They were bill collectors and possibly the IRS or, or the law. <clears throat> but it was, um, 
it was my son, my 10-year-old son, who I'd met his mother uh, 10 years earlier at the old Broadway, and I think she was pregnant the next day. <laughs> One of those deals. <laughs> you know, and so we went, you know, we went through the, the birth and everything together. But <clears throat> after that, her parents basically whisked her away to Wichita, Kansas, just to get away from her drug-addicted boyfriend. And she called me, um, well, getting back to that that moment uh, of his phone call, he said, uh, Dad, this is is Ryan. And I'm going, Dad, uh, Ryan? Uh, And then it hit me. I had this son, I had this boy, who at the time um, I had an agreement with his mother that when he's old enough, you will let him call me. And um, the magic number for her uh, was 10. And... um, so he called me and uh, and he said, "Dad, Mom says it's okay now for me to come and see you. Um, and uh, is, can we do that this summer?" And I I said, "Well, sure, we we can do that." And at the back of my mind, I'm going, "I can't do that," you know. And and uh, we hung up the phone and. I just dropped to my knees and I just had a total breakdown, just a total, just cried like a baby. And um, I knew this was a come to Jesus moment for me. And in the book, there's a chapter called Paying the Piper and that this was time, it was time to pay the piper. So fortunately, I had a brother who was a who was a, a psychologist in New York at the time, and I called Paul and I said, "Paul, I'm ready." And he of course he knew what I meant by that because he knew I was struggling, and I uh, said, "Could you make some calls for me?" So he did. He called up at, at TNI at the time was on First Avenue and uh, and A Street. And um, he said, okay, Uh, he called me back and he says, you've got an appointment in an hour to get there with Elaine Burrow at Drake and Burrow. And um, so I got in my car, I drove there, I probably drove around the block about five times just to get up enough nerve because I knew this was either the end or the beginning. And so I went in, I sat down with Elaine, and we discussed options, inpatient, outpatient, uh, AA. Um, and I said, look, I'm, re- I'm ready to do this. I don't know if I need inpatient. If I can just make it a week without any major withdrawals, um, I'll go to a meeting every day if, if if that's what you want me to do. So fortunately, there was a there was an AA meeting right across the hallway. So she took me over there. I sat down. I noticed some 
of my friends who were in there that I had no idea were in the same boat. Mm-hmm. And um and that night um or that afternoon uh I secured a sponsor uh at that meeting. His name was Tim. And I learned er, er, later on that he had been involved in AA for 16 years and had never gotten his one-year medallion. So in other words, he he never made it a full year being sober. And I always attributed that as I learned, you know, through sobriety, that if there isn't enough contrast in your new life from your past life, it's much easier to relapse. So he relapsed 16 times. And here I've got a sponsor (laughs) that I'm leaning on, right? And within a month, we flip-flopped. I was his sponsor, and he was... His wife would call me and say, Steve, oh, my God, Tim's on a bender. You need to come over. And I'm going, oh, geez. So Tim is dead. Uh, he died at 49. And um, he he came into my shop one day um, in, in his mid-40s, and he had soiled himself, and he was he was staggering around in my tools and and I just thought, oh my gosh, this is this is really sad. So some of us, and I think these statistics will show that the odds of relapse are really pretty good. But in my case, um, a week had passed, and I thought, I'm I'm home free. I'm I'm free of this, and maybe I'll see fifty instead of forty. And so I continued to go to, to meetings. And then at the end of the, of the month, we do open meetings and you get up and you tell your story, which was important to do to, for, for newbies who were coming. And I was able to do that for about five years, tell my story. And it helped me uh, continue <clears throat> my sobriety as well. But for me, the contrast between the new life and the past life was so broad that I knew I'd have to be a complete idiot to ever want to go back there. And and so after five years, and I, I hate to admit this, but I I just got on with my life um, when it, when it came to going to meetings and and um, occasionally after that for for maybe another 5 years I'd go to some of those open meetings and tell my story because I think it I think it helped but now 32 years have passed and um AA is just it's not a part of my life and you know I've got I've got uh my three other four siblings and between the four of us there's like 125 years of sobriety so it runs along bloodlines this runs in families and if, if if I had a nickel for every one of my nieces and nephews and and their kids who are also have also found sobriety, it's amazing to to understand to the uh, that yes, 
this does run in families, especially if it's on both sides of your of your family, you know. Steve, ask, so, a, ask you a question. Oh, yeah. no, go ahead. No, go ahead. The at the time you were single. And, yes. And just out of curiosity, you know, the dramatic change in life in terms of that life I live, I, I have to divorce myself from the places I'd go, the people I would associate with, et cetera, et cetera, because the odds are right. if I don't, I'm going to relapse just like Tim. From my knowledge of people that <clears throat> go through this change in their life with regards to addiction, typically they have a, a spouse or a significant other in close proximity. Right. And in your case, you didn't. So you're divorcing yourself from the old Broadway, all of those things that you, okay. that were part of your life uh, and you were alone. Were you, in addition to the meetings and the time that you'd spend there the first five years, were you connecting a lot with your own, with your siblings? No. And I think for me, loneliness was never, uh, was never uh, an issue, never something that bothered me because there was so much loneliness growing up. I almost kind of welcomed it because all my friends left. I think they thought I was contagious, you know, and and all my friends were were drinkers, you know, and we all party together. We we'd go downtown and and party, and and so all of a sudden they're they're all gone, with maybe a couple of exceptions, you know. But but uh, I chose to do it alone. I chose to take my frisbee down to Oak Grove and play frisbee golf by myself during this period, and that that chapter is in in the book too. Um, and so I gradually made new friends. Of course, I had friends in AA early on, but you know these were all friends that you know you knew their first name. You really didn't know their last name and and you really didn't have any contact with them unless you were they were your sponsor but um but keep in mind too i played softball for a bar i played softball for 37 years and i so i played the last 22 years for rooters bar so so i i'd still go down there with my teammates you know so i didn't lose my teammates because they were stuck with me, sober or not. And um, I think they they questioned that I had a problem because I wasn't a sloppy, fall down. I inherited this tolerance for drugs and alcohol from, from my dad. I never saw my dad drunk because he had an incredible tolerance, but it just always had a buzz on. So I continued to go to Reuters, but I knew even after a couple of years that I'm not going back. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to drink again. And I never have. However, I was slipped a Mickey a couple of times. This wasn't in the book. And you'll never guess where. Communion at church. 
normally in the middle of the tray they'd ha- they'd have uh they'd have grape juice right for us in recovery but whoever filled that tray sometimes they just you know maybe they didn't give a rip but um there were a couple of times that I went to the middle of the tray and tipped it up. Oh my God, that's Morgan David. For God's sakes, I need to. T-. You know, so I talked to my 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 pastor friend. I said, "Look, this cannot happen ever again. You can't. This can't happen." But it did. It happened again, and. So seeing as I, I was a charter member of my church, so I'd, I'd gone there since I was two, I, I, I told Tim, I told my pastor, I said, look, you need to get white grape juice and put it in the middle of that tray because I'm not the only recovering alcoholic in this church. You guys have got to figure this out. This can't ever happen again. And I had some pull, I guess. <laughs> they, they put the, they, you know, being a charter member, I guess I had some pull. So they put the the white grape juice in the middle, and and from that point on, we were good. But those were the two times that I drank alcohol in the last thirty two years. Now I know I I understand there's that, that when you eat bread, it might turn uh, it either turns to alcohol or some, I'm not sure, but somebody told me that that you know when you eat bread, you do know you're you're or you're uh, you're you're taking alcohol. And I said, "Come on, whatever." So yeah, those were those were the two times, and uh, 32 years have passed, and I'm I'm I'll be 70 and uh, on May 24th, and uh, living the best years of my life right now. Let's talk a little bit about that side of your brain that's never empty, where (laughs) you just have this gift for creating. I I must say, and folks, just don't don't take my word for it. Go to Steve Revlin, S-T-E-V-E-R-E-V-L-A-N-D.com. We'll also post that on MikeSeminary.com to see the incredible talent that Steve has. Where does that inspiration come, number one? Number two, well, I'll, just ask, I'll ask that first question, and I'll follow up with what I was going to ask uh, after your answer. Where does that inspiration come from, Steve? I don't know. It it just shows up in my head, and I think a number of artists you can you can ask them the same question, and it just uh, it shows up in in your head. Um, in my case, you know, I would do I would do doodles on napkins, and I'd be somewhere, and I had an idea, and I just I start doodling on a piece of paper or a napkin, and think, well, I tomorrow when I get in the shop. I'm going to start. It's kind of like playing piano by ear. Some of these things start out, and as you're creating them, there's a vision in your head that, oh, I need to go this direction, or I need to go that direction. So that was was more prevalent in uh, 
early on in, in the middle part of my career. Now, at after 50, 52 years of, of crafting, it's just become um, very easy. It just shows up in my head. I'll get a slab of wood uh, I get from Costa Rica or Mexico or Brazil and into my studio, and I'll look at that piece of wood, and, well, I know what that's going to be. You know, I know what I'm going to do with that. So I just walk in the shop, turn on the music, and do a little dance, and uh, away we go, you know, and it's just become, um, you know, I learn something new every day, you know, and um, and that will continue on. Never say you know everything, you know, uh, even after, you know, over 50 years or half a century of doing this. Um, but it has become very, it's become more hobby-like, even though I'm making a very good living um, as, a, as a hobby. Uh, and I don't work eight hours a day. I, I maybe work five hours a day. So I can still have time to, to golf, garden, spend time with my grandkids, my wife. I didn't get married till I was 52, and I don't think anyone would have married me um, earlier on. Uh, just wasn't marriage material. So I was 52. But um, uh, and when I I met my wife, she had just lost her husband, who was uh, an alcoholic, and he he died in a snowmobile accident. And um, we started dating, and she was used to having to pick him up at Woody's or the, any bar late at night because he needed a ride home. And I said to her, okay, here's the deal. You're involved with an artist in recovery, and all I need is a litter box and a dish. And I'm very low maintenance. You're never going to have to pick me up at a bar at night. I'll try my best to make you laugh, bring you joy. There are going to be times that you go, where's Steve? Oh, he's out in his shop again. It's 2 o'clock in the morning for Pete's sake. Well, it's because I'm out there because I had something show up in my head. And I had to take advantage of that moment. And um, I've had so many of those moments, and I think of the thousands of pieces that I've had the privilege of making for folks. The appearances on HGTV in, in the 90s that, the, how, you know, how the heck did that ever happen? You know, so I've, I, I, like, I like to say I've, I've led a charmed life, but I, I also had so many obstacles to weave my way around to get from point A to point B. And I think the book, it can be a book about recovery, yes, but it can also be a book about success as an artist and through hard work, determination, and just never giving up on yourself, 
Steve, I was going to ask you a question about how at this season of your life, you're able to toss around these pieces of furniture, but I'm going to come back to that because you just said something that is so darn important. I was so involved in your book because of the common connections. And I, I can, like Joe Cartwright, for example, we, we could have a whole show about yeah. Joe Cartwright, this yeah. incredible human being. We'd bring on Leo Massey, for example, right. and have the three of us talk about right. this remarkable individual. He was just so special. Uh, we could talk about Brad Wimmer, right? Uh, Marin uh, uh, Daywood. Um, we could talk more about music, it, it, all of that. But w one of the things, and you almost kind of downplayed it in a way, because most of the chapters are very, very short, because it makes for such a quick read. There's 27 chapters, and they're just all so well written. The addiction part and overcoming that, you kind of soft sold that for whatever reason. And what you just referred to, I think, is so important. There, the book is also about recovery for for people that have, and we all have, we all have challenges, we all have issues. We might not all have the same ones you did when, with regards to addiction, alcohol, uh, drugs. Uh, ADHD, dyslexia, Tourette's. I mean, that that's a that's quite a list. It's a package. It's, it is. That's a, that's a package that most people probably don't want. Yeah. But you overcame it. Yeah. And um, were it not for maybe that call from Ryan. Right. When he was 10. Yeah. My oh my. What, yeah. what, what could we have been robbed of? I, I, that, you know, the what if. Right. So it's a book of overcoming and great celebration, in my opinion. And and thank you for thank you so much for writing it. So now back to my question. Yeah. And I I even asked you this when I came to pick up. I'm going to call it my piece of art. Right. And you said, you know, Mike, that base is 90 pounds. <laughs> and I asked you, what did you move it here yourself? He said, Oh yeah. You, you you just kind of figure it out how to throw around these big pieces of heavy work. And you're still doing it. Um, how do you do that? I mean, that, that that's a big deal. Yeah, yeah. My my wife likes likes to say, "Well, you're seventy going on uh, on twenty five. Um, the uh, the practice of woodworking is a very isometric exercise, a dance." a ballet and throughout that exercise you remain pretty well toned <laughs> all of your life so i've got guns you know uh for biceps my hands are like vice grips and so but i've never exercised a day in my life because this this is it it, it, it just uh, I get my exercise every day and I don't realize I'm getting it, you know. So so I've I've just got muscles, <laughs> and and I'm very proud of that. Um, 
but it all came through the work that I do. And of course, you get some slabs of wood that are for dining of tables that are, you know, a thousand pounds. And of course, I've got methods and carts and caveman techniques on how to roll them out of your van, put some dowels underneath there and roll them out onto a cart and then cart that piece of wood through the shop until you're done with it. So, of course, I'm not going to. I do realize my age and that I could hurt myself. So I'm still careful. And my wife, you know, reminds me of that. Um, but, you know, artists, we, we age chronologically, but we remain children forever. So I'm talking to you today as an adult. Because when I'm forced to talk to another adult, I have to act like one. But most of the time, I'm a child. And that it's what a joy that you never have to grow up. And um, and at the same time, you you develop um, a body um, through forced exercise that is the same body you had 40 years ago you know so that's how i i lift those things and um but the heavier things of course i've got methods and um so yeah you you've got a heavy uh you've got a heavy table there mike and i'm so glad you have it i am so oh, glad. everybody that sees it just they're in awe I should post it again. You know what? I'm gonna, when I when I push out our podcast, I'm going to take a picture of it All right. and and, po- and post it. By the way, what you just told me is kind of a similar conversation I've had when people ask me why do I still run? I'll be right. I'll be 69 shortly, and I run as you know. I run every day. Yeah, um, and they're not short runs. I tell people well, that's one of the ways. I don't allow old in. Yeah, right. And so, so you're saying almost the same thing. Yep. So that's a way for part of us, we're not going to grow up in that space. Right. I know we're kind of running out of time here. So I'm going to ask you this question. In advance of your fall concert, would you consider coming back on? We'll do a podcast in advance of that to promote it. And maybe even play a little music together. Would you ever consider doing that? Just kind of a fun kind of podcast where we're not talking about anything serious. Just a couple guys that don't allow old in to play some music together. (laughs) Of course I would. Okay. Of course I would. So here's maybe a deeper question. And... I kind of just referred to it with regards to the book. If you had a magic wand, you could wave over the head of people that struggle with addiction. And and maybe they don't have the blessing of getting a call from right. a, a 10-year-old Ryan. But they they've got it. They they've got it for whatever reason. What's the one thing you want them to know about how to deal with it? Well, how to deal with sobriety or how to deal with 
pre-sobriety. Um, is that is that what you're asking me, Mike? How to deal with uh, being sober, or how to deal with uh, getting sober? You're at a point where you have a decision to make. Let's put it. Yeah. Down. Wow. Well, death is not an option. You know, we get one go around here on this planet. And um, my dad always, always drummed into my head two things in particular. Tell the truth, because it's much easier to keep track of. And do your best to create a legacy for yourself. Because if everyone did that, we'd be living in a better world. Create some sort of legacy. And I guess um, that also inspired me when I wrote the book. As I was writing it, I thought, wow, this is so much fun. Um, and, you know, if you'd asked me two years ago or three years ago about, you know, would you ever consider being an author? I just said, what? That's just something that never you know, I know what I do, and I know what I do best, and and uh, I have very few things I'm good at. Um, but now, all of a sudden, I'm being asked to write another book, and I'm thinking, hmm, th this could be an extension of a, what, call it a legacy, and I wish Dad was around to, to witness this, you know, but um, um, strive for legacy mm. everyone you all have it in you you have created a legacy michael you know and, and especially through this wonderful podcast um so i i would just say to everyone work hard do what you like to do and try to leave something behind Mm. Thank you. I thank you for that your kind word and nice compliment. Kind of a follow-up question. Do you have time for one more? Yeah. Did you want to bring up the forward in the book? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, got... Since you did, bring it up. I, I just bring up Mr. Morrissey and bring okay. up okay. and bring up what you said about <laughs> what a forward is. <laughs> well, I've never I've never read a book, obviously. So obviously the foreword is is at the very beginning of the book. So obviously I never even opened uh, a lot of books to that that first uh, those first two pages after the table of contents. And so the publisher said you're going to need a foreword, F O R E W O R D, for your book. And it it if it's an author that would be uh, advantageous to your sales. Well, I wasn't concerned about sales, but at the time, I knew a, a friend who was uh, uh, an author, and he just so happened to be my my seventh grade teacher, English teacher at Agassiz Junior High. So I Googled forward and what that was, and 
And so I called Mike, I called Mike Morrissey, who is now 83 years old and one of my best friends. Um, and we every time we uh, we get together, we, we I dropped off a, a signed book for him and his wife uh, a few weeks ago. And we sat down again and we we laugh every time we we talk about this because he had he had no right to pass me because I never handed in an assignment. I never read, uh, never did a book report. I didn't know what a uh, past participle was or whatever he called them. And he'd always say, he said to me, you know, you were one of those kids that came in and grabbed a window seat. I could always tell the kids that wanted to learn and would become achievers in life sat in the front. But you came in and chose the window seat because that's where you looked out all day just dreaming about what is and what needs to be done. So in every class, I at Agassiz, I chose a window seat. Now, it's South High School, they were smart. They didn't have any windows. So <laughs> you, were forced, you were forced to go in and learn. But that's Mike, uh, Mike and I, and he was so concerned about uh, he rewrote that forward two or three times, he said, because he was so worried that it, it wouldn't live up to my standards, which was really pretty funny, you know. Um, but that's our my, that's Mike and, and my little secret. Of course, it's no longer a secret, but he would love to know that he would love the whole state of North Dakota to know that uh that he also has written books and he has he's read thousands of books and i haven't read mine yet <laughs> i love what he said with regards to diagramming sentences and this is the i way <laughs> i'm gonna get this guy to do this i'm paraphrasing what he said and he said that it didn't work <laughs> i tell my i tell my my uh journalist friends uh that uh i never met a comma i didn't like <laughs> and fortunately when you write a book on google docs you know it it it, it spell corrects you uh and it it also repairs uh some contextual uh, errors as well it kind of underlies it saying you know well you may have too many commas here or too many dot dot dots but but anyway um it's been a great journey mike and and a, just such an honor to be on your on your show today wow and thank you so again. much Steve. other than the website any other contact information you want people to be aware of or is the website good now well, Instagram, uh, you know, you could just Google Steve Rivalin and you'll probably find more information that you that you want to, you know, but Facebook uh, is huge for me. Instagram, I have 30,000 followers on Instagram, which I wouldn't wish on anyone. Um, so my websites to me have become kind of obsolete. You have to have one as a professional, but social media has really taken over. Yeah. You know, so that is where uh, I sell a lot of my work. If I don't sell it at the gallery, I'm probably selling it on Facebook or Instagram. Well, Steve, thank you so much for 
taking time to join me. Uh, thank you for producing this incredible writing desk that I have. It was a way for us to really begin to know each other, even though we hadn't met. Thank you for writing the book. It is, it's in a very important book, by the way. And you didn't say this, but I'll ask if you'd be willing to share it. You had intended to write the book for your son and uh, your stepkids, and maybe you would sell 20 or something. How many had you sold? Well, I do get a report every Friday from Palmetto, where I'm at. And, uh, of course, I'll be getting a report tomorrow, um, in, in which will uh, include sales from the book fair in San Francisco um, last weekend. But um, it, it's over 15,000 uh, books which doesn't make it a bestseller but not even close but but yeah um that is beyond my wildest uh imagination that that uh that 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 could happen and you can you can you can purchase it purchase it online at amazon or uh or barnes and noble and that's where people are people are buying it um you can come to the gallery too, and we've got copies there. But, but um, at the point now where people come in, I worked the gallery last Saturday, and um, I've been giving them away because fifteen thousand for Pete's sake, you know. And then they're going to re-release it a year from now <clears throat> as a second uh, edition, and um, they they said we think it has legs because uh, of of it's a self-help type book and could be around for a while. And I said, well, maybe someday I'll read it. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, put this on your calendar. If, if we, if you have the time and we can do this again in advance of your fall concert. Okay. And we want to talk just about music. Maybe you want to share with what you read and learned from your own book when we do this yeah. again in the fall. <laughs> Sounds great, Mike. Steve, thank you so much. Thank, yeah. thank you for all you do. And you're such a special human being. I consider wow. myself really lucky and blessed that uh, we met. And uh, you're, you're really a special person. Thanks for taking time to join me today. Thanks, Michael. Appreciate it. Take care.